You're listening to Broadview Church Sermon Audio. For more information or to donate to this ministry, go to broadviewchurch.ca. Thank you, John and Christina. Hello, Broadview. I have seen you. When Sharon and I first started on this adventure, um, we got tired of watching our old church on Zoom, so we just started lurking around in churches all over the province in our new, you know, interior BC zone, and uh, it's a great zone, happy to be part of it, so I, I, we watched, uh, there's a baptism last summer, or sometime, it looked sunny out, yes? We, maybe there's been more than one, but anyway, we watched one of the baptism services, which was really cool. You all look much taller in person. We're tired of Zoom, eh? Um, this is our first service live for 20 years. I don't know. <laughs> it seems like forever. Um, I've preached other places. I've preached uh, at our Merritt Sister Church a few times, uh, all on Zoom. And uh, so what a delight to be invited. Thank you very much. Thanks to John. Thank you to the elders and uh, all you members. It's great to be invited. And uh, John twisted my arm and said, you know, you got to say a little bit about the church plant before you open the word. And, you know, uh, okay, we'll, we, I will. Um, and I'm sure you do want to hear a little bit about it. Uh, for anyone who hasn't been following the story, um, I hope that uh, more might start following the story after today. I want to, you know, start by thanking uh, District Superintendent Martin, who I believe is following me next week. He told me not to preach very well. So, I'm not even making that up. He flat out told me that. Uh, but, uh, so blame him. But, um, you know, I want to thank Martin. I want to thank the CPD who have been so gracious in the process of candidating, you know, to be a, a, a church plant couple, church plant missionaries down in Asuyus. And I uh, want to thank all, all the uh, supporting churches. I mean, everyone's been supporting in some way, um, and including Broadview, and, and you know, today is a good example of that. So thank you for that. And uh, for all the individual encouragers, people who might have been praying. And uh, we want to just say a word or two about what has been happening, as I said. And, and here's our purpose statements. You know, purpose statements can change but, uh, and, and evolve, but here's the current version. Planting and growing a community of spiritual friends who encourage one another and others to follow the way of Jesus. This has been guiding us in these, this first year and a half. We have a threefold strategy. And uh, afterwards, um, we, we came up with this, led by the Spirit, we hope, we pray. But then we found out that someone came up with it before. There's nothing new under the sun. There's a very well-known teacher called David Fitch, who's an alliance guy. We will forgive that. But, you know, I think he's an honorary E-free guy. And, um, no, he's, he's an amazing writer and teacher. And he came up with this kind of model, especially appropriate to church plants, but maybe you'll find something in it too. And um, the three sort of ways of operating, it's not a closed circle, that first one. Read it carefully. It's a close circle, a close circle. And we have been uh, modeling that with a monthly communion service. And up until... Last month, it was on Zoom, and we had a very creative way to do communion on Zoom. If you're curious, we'll, we can tell you in the foyer afterwards. I won't go into all that right now, but it was a very creative way. People have really appreciated it. 
But no one's going to miss it because as of July, as of this month, we'll be doing it in person, which is going to be great. So that's a monthly time together. That's our, our biggest kind of gathering. Uh, not very big at this point, but the biggest. And then the middle circle there, he calls this the dotted circle, the close circle than the dotted circle. And this is um, where we're meeting in homes. And uh, fellow members, fellow travelers, seekers, all together, mixed together. And we're doing this through a thing we call POD. You may, lots of people are seen to be using this term now. And I like acronyms, so I, I turn the POD into prayer, opening the word, and doing good. And so we have these POD meetings every week. They've been on our deck. We have a, a good-sized deck, thankfully. And, um, and there's a little picture of us on the deck coming up here. We'll just go to that next slide. There you go. And, um, yeah, this is our, our time together, especially in the Word. But uh, we, did, we did it just yesterday and then jumped in the car and drove through the smoke to be with you. And... Um, uh, the, these are amazing times. I've never been in a better, better Bible study group than this group. And I, I just have to be very clear. When we arrived a year and a half ago, we knew Asuyus fairly well from vacation times, but uh, we had how big a team? Zero. <laughs> so everything you see, everything you hear about, if you ask more about it, it's all happened by God's grace in the last year and a half. Like, Saint, you know, Paul going into a town... And uh, we're so grateful for every little sign of grace, every, every step, every point of growth. The last, uh, let's just zip back one slide. Sorry, I threw on the operator into a tizzy. Go back one slide just to get this picture again. What, he, what David Fitch calls the half circle is where you're intersecting with uh, folks in the wider world on their ground, where they're comfortable. And this could be in meaning involvement with clubs or various kinds of activities, maybe even partnerships with appropriate groups, um, fellow travelers in doing something good in the community, at least, as a, as a way to start building relationships with people. And uh, so we, we got involved with this, and we have three different service things going on. We didn't start any of them. We just joined them. We don't have the resources to start something at this point, but we can certainly join and are, are playing a very big role in the food bank in town, and there's a public garden that we help on. And, oh, there's a, let's go back to the picture slide. This is my last time. I'm going to make you go back and forth. Maybe not. Um, here's the picture of one of our first members sitting in a pile of, or next to a pile of stuff that we've just been cutting out of the garden. And uh, this has been much appreciated in the community. And some of our uh, folks that are on that, that Bible study circle have directly come from this involvement with the community. Uh, lots of recreational and social events. My wife, Sharon, who will be up here in a second, uh, she is a public health nurse and involved with the vaccination campaign, among other public health activities. And uh, that's created another great platform to connect with people. Uh, everyone knows Sharon, and everyone wants her to do the shots, by the way. Excellent at it. So just in case there's anyone that... Do you have the supplies? No supplies. Okay. Um, right. How can you be involved? That's a bit of the story. Um, I'm going to mention a couple of things in the sermon about impact. Um, impact is the most important thing, not just this itinerary of things we're doing. Uh, 
I have a slide. We'll go to the next slide. This is a slide that can say how you can be involved with the, both the itinerary and the impact. If, if you want to keep track of what we're doing, we do a quarterly newsletter. And uh, I brought a sheet along that you can sign up. It's at the in, I t I'm told it's officially the information table. You know where that is? And that, that is where you could sign up, and we'll, we'll be happy to send you that quarterly newsletter. It has, always has great pictures and a good story. Lots of things to pray for. Um, I cannot read that fine print, but I'm, I'm assuming it's legible behind me. Uh, pick out, you know, there's too many things, but maybe just pick out one that grabs you, and, and maybe you can make that your thing to be praying for, for the Asoyuz project. Or, as we like to call it, this is our unofficial name that we're test driving called Wayside Crossing. Wayside Crossing. And lastly, giving financially. Again, John made me promise to say this. Uh, but we, of course, need support. Uh, there is some core member giving happening. We're grateful for that, but it's not quite at the level of the budget at this point. So, And we're about to expand our budget because we're going to start meeting in a public space, for the communion at least, uh, very soon, hopefully by September. And that will include some rental uh, budget, that kind of thing. Uh, there's a sheet out there, too, that tells you how to support that way individually. Uh, several churches are also supporting us from around the district. And, well, like I say, we're immensely grateful. What an encouragement. Well, that's it on Wayside Crossing, the Asoyuz Project. Now the most important thing of all, my wife Sharon, she's going to come out and read the key text today. I shouldn't say give you a round of applause. That would be bad. Is this on? Can you hear me? Okay. Um, this is just my wee opportunity to say hello as well. Um, we're delighted to be here. Uh, our first time in Salmon Arm. Certainly our first time in person with you folks. So uh, we went for a little walk down by the lake last night. It felt like we were at the ocean. There were seagulls, which was interesting. Lost seagulls, I guess. Um, just lovely. Thank you so much for inviting us. We're really happy to be here. I'm going to read the scripture passage this morning, which is from the book of Job, uh, chapter 33, verses 23 to 28. Yet if there is an angel at their side, a messenger, one out of a thousand, sent to tell them how to be upright, and he is gracious to that person and says to God, Spare them from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom for them. Let their flesh be renewed like a child's. Let them be restored as in the days of their youth, that that person can pray to God and find favor with him. They will see God's faith and shout for joy. He will restore them to full well-being, and they will go to others and say, I have sinned. I have perverted what is right. But I did not get what I deserved. God has delivered me from going down to the pit, and I shall live to enjoy the light of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. So, I'm just, what is the. We can move on to the title slide, just the title, we'll pause on that, the title slide for the sermon. Um, as we get into the story, yeah, turn to Job chapter 1, I'm going to do all 42 chapters. <laughs> joking, joking. 
no, it's going to be very selective, but we are looking at Job. And uh, here's a story from my life. It's kind of an embarrassing story, a recent story that already gets at some of the themes that we're going to get at today in this, in this opening of the word. It was when we heard about the Lytton catastrophe, the decimation of that little town, and, uh, you know, saw the terrible pictures and started to hear some of the testimonies. It's a sensitive topic right now in B.C., of course, uh, everywhere, uh, including here, I know, with some maybe even new fires just starting. And, um, but, you know, our little group wanted to do something, and for the first time, I, I put forward the possibility of some designated gifts. I got permission to do that, and people started in our little group uh, putting some money into a pot that, in the, in the name of Wayside Crossing, will then hand off to a service agency who will be working on recovery. Uh, but here's the embarrassing part. There was a passing notice at one point early on. Uh, you know, I mean, it was very moving. I mean, it was easy to be moved about this thing. You know, you, you could empathize at a very deep level right away. So not hard for people to feel moved to give and do, do something and, and pray. And... But the embarrassing part was that I, I heard this notice on, on the news and where there was a suggestion that the fire had started, you know, in the town. Like it would... So it wasn't this, you know... Well, I, I you know... The problem was I just thought about that right away and thought, you know, I jumped to a conclusion. Oh, yeah, well, someone irresponsible, you know, in the town started this fire. Okay, now here's the embarrassing, the shameful part. I'm about to shame myself in front of you. In my spirit, I had this little moment thinking, well, I, maybe that's not such a worthy cause. That's the shameful moment. Because... You know, maybe, maybe that disaster, maybe that is some kind of punishment, some kind of consequence for someone being foolish, and they should find out who that person is, and maybe they should raise all the money, and that all flashed through me, and in, in the next instance, I thought, Dan, 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 you've just fallen into this trap, this terrible trap of, you know, calculating uh, where compassion should go and where mercy should flow and where my dollar should go based on whether the people deserve it or somehow if they've been responsible, that puts them on a lower level of deserving or of that kind of response. Now, maybe I'm the only one in the room who ever goes to that way of thinking when you hear about a bad thing happening. But I suspect not. And it, I was preparing this message, and I thought, wow, that was, that was a wake-up call for me in that moment. This text that Sharon just read, we'll put it up again, it's the next slide, uh, may, well, maybe the theme sounded familiar to you and yet strange at the same time. This reference to a messenger, one out of a thousand, sent to tell them how to be upright. It's, it's recognizably a gospel statement. It's a good news statement. But it does need some unpacking. It's not straightforward. We have a little bit of a road to get there, and let me go to the start. Here's my starting positions when I was thinking about this message. We'll go to the next slide. Starting positions. And that is 
that as evangelicals, if you claim that name, it's in the name of our denomination, you have to claim that name, but uh, maybe some claim it reluctantly. It's a name that's fallen on hard times. But evangelicals are an ethos before they are some elaborate institution. And the ethos at the core is, of course, this word evangel, which means gospel. We are gospel people. And that has to be absolutely core, absolutely held onto all the time as we navigate through the complex politics of our world these days. The second thing, starting position, was that this gospel is too precious not to be thinking about it and praying about it and, yeah, even reviewing and refining it as we live it out and as we speak it out. It's worthy of study. It's not something etched in stone and, you know, that's it, let's move on to all the other topics. No, this is a topic that we need to continue to go deep on and explore. It's too precious to not do that. And what are the resources for that going deep and filling out our understanding of the gospel and perhaps even correcting sometimes our understanding of the gospel? The resources, well, they're familiar ones. The whole Bible. Well, I hope the whole Bible's familiar. The whole word. Prayer. I threw in here humility, and what I mean by that is, how do we handle questions today about evangelicals and about the gospel and about the church? It's always the church, and people have this idea that there's this one church, capital T, and uh, that's already a complex starting point, but humility means that when we, we encounter the hard questions from the world, it would be good, like if someone comes along and goes, huh, what? It'd be good to start by listening, <laughs> by being careful to listen and work with that question. That question can be the start of a beautiful conversation. But to not overreact, to not get our back up about a pushback that might come. Another starting point is to realize that when you're planting a church by God's grace, that all of what I just said is doubly true. I mean, we're, we're encountering people that have never thought about God, or at least not for a long time. Not the gospel, what is that? Uh, Jesus, well, I, I've heard of him. I think I like him. Don't know much about him. I mean, this is, this is our daily. And so this need to go deep on the gospel and to be embedded in the gospel in a... In a a full and powerful and real way is our daily bread and butter down in Asuyus. And it's not just for church plants, though. I want to say, when churches are being called towards a post-pandemic renewal, and that may be you, then this is still very important starting position. Important for every church, not just church plants. This is the gospel in the book of Job. Go to the next slide. I mentioned the whole Bible, and Job is no exception as a resource. And he's, he's uniquely a resource. It's a unique place to land. Because in many ways, Job is portrayed here in this book as what I call an every human. And I came to this recently because when you read carefully the beginning of the book, you'll see that there's a lot of echoes of the Garden of Eden, of, of the original place the original vision. Notice Job's success in tending to the land. 
Does that sound Adam and Eve-like? Being fruitful and multiplying. Had ten kids. The fact that he endured a test, get this, Garden of Eden stuff, endured a test authorized by God but facilitated by an accuser. Does that sound familiar? The thing that isn't so clear in the Garden of Eden, in the beginning of Genesis, is this last point. I call it the heart-tugging attempts to help his ne'er-do-well children. It actually is in the story of Adam and Eve. You have to read a little carefully to see it. But in Job, don't miss it. It, You can't miss it if you just read those opening uh, verses. He was deeply concerned about his children who apparently were failing the test. And this was, it's more than a hint, that they were falling into idolatry in the uh, eat, drinking, and merry parties that they had regularly. You can look this up in Job 1, 4, and 5. Father Job, very concerned about his kids. And the question that's hanging over the whole book, go to the next slide, is, is, will every human Job pass the test? Will he pass the test that is going to come at him so hard? And here's the surprising starting point in the story. Before we even get to the test proper, he's already had tests in life. We all do. We all face challenges, really tough challenges sometimes. We just heard about a terrible challenge in this family with the cancer diagnosis. The surprise thing here is that Job has been passing the test so far. The story kind of starts in the middle. He already has been doing his thing in the garden, his version of the garden, and he's been passing the test, not because he's been successful economically or had a bunch of kids, but he's been passing the test in the way that both the narrator and God agree on. This phrase is used twice, once by the narrator, once by God. God be right, here it is. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. I want that on my gravestone. That's great. That's an amazing uh, affirmation. He's already passing the test when the story opens. But what does this mean? I know as good Bible students, you'll know that fearing God... Fearing God means that you know the living God. That's what fearing God means. You know Him. He's alive. As we've been singing about, He's the one that holds the victory. He's the one that that will uh, raise us from the dead. And that's because He's the living one. Fearing God means you know the living God. And you know that God knows you. That part of it's important too. There's no hiding He's also spoken to someone who lives wisely. And as the Bible says, the source of wise living, the kind of wise living that pleases God, is to stay close to God. That's what the Bible says. That's what fearing God means. It means to stick close with Him. It's counterintuitive because fearing God sounds like, no, maybe I should move away or invite Him to get away. But that is not what it means. It means the opposite. It means... Because you know he's the living God. He's the one you want to be close to. And that is what Job does. 
And we learn in the book of Job, and we also learn in other wisdom literature like Proverbs 9 and Psalm 1, these famous passages, that the wicked, instead of staying close to God, they abandon God for idols. They stick close to the no-gods. Well, I've just summed up the entire Old Testament. He's already passing the test. Jesus himself, in the next slide, we come to John 14, this amazing passage. Jesus points to the same way of life as we see in Job. Let me read this text. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do, not, you do know him and you have seen him. I know that this is a favorite reading at memorial services and funerals. Um, But there's so much more going on here before you're dead. (laughs) Life before death. Um, There's so much more going on here for the disciple to be aware of. Do you see it? Do you see that Jesus is saying, um, the way I'm going to show you is the way of staying close to God. This is the way. Fearing God means being in an intimate relationship with him. This is Jesus' message. That is the way I'm going to show you. Hanging out in the place where God is. Having close contact with him so that his spirit purifies you and empowers you. Now, God sent many servant messengers along the along the way in history to invite people into this relationship with the living God. You know this is true. One messenger after another. And in a way, we can think of Job as another one of these messengers worth listening to. The prophet Ezekiel refers to him just that way. And then later, teacher James, in the same way, refers to Job as this one we should pay attention to. And finally, after many of these messengers in history were rejected and even scapegoated and even sacrificed, God sent his son to show human beings the way. And you may think, surely now, with the son coming, every human will move towards God through the son. They have to, don't they? To move towards him rather than towards idols. The sun has come. Surely the no gods will drop off, but, well, you know how it turned out. You know how it turned out. Here's how it turned out for Job. He'd been passing the test already. So we'll go to the next slide. And so what happens to Job is what we call the advanced test. This is AP English. This is advanced placement English. This is like... Or maybe AP Hebrew. Hebrew. It's like, right? Like this is like more is going to come at him. He's been passing the test, so here's the advance. And it's instigated, surprisingly, by this figure referred to as Satan, which the word means accuser. 
And this accuser is allowed by God to do this test. Um, let's go further. It's authorized by God to lay the test on Job. You may be wondering about that. That's a whole other sermon some other time. Who does the accuser accuse, accuse, this Satan figure? Who does he accuse? Well, it's not, you know, you might just jump to the conclusion, well, well Job, and, and that does happen eventually, but his first, the first being he accuses is God. <laughs> Don't miss that. The accuser says, God, you have not revealed the whole story to Job. You, you've not told Job about the possibility of a premature death. Look that up in Job 1, 9 to 11. I mean, God, you're protecting his, his people and his stuff. You're allowing him to maximize the enjoyment of life. And you've not exposed him to the possibility of a short and brutal life. And here's God's shocking response to that accusation. He says, I authorize you to not only tell Job, but to demonstrate the reality of death before his eyes. And so while Job was living out his blameless life, as we're told, don't miss that, as Job was living out his blameless life, his livelihood, his innocent servants, we think they're innocent, we're not told otherwise, and his not-so-innocent children are all wiped out. You know, many will know the story. This accused was God, and this is the the one that Job is going to complain about later. He doesn't quite come to the point of accusing God or coming close or or cursing him, but he he comes close to that. but, But he does complain to God, the same one that the accuser accuses. But here's the amazing news, this advanced test part one page one of the test. Job passes the test. Again, he passes the test. It turns out that for Job, living a long life with God, even with all of the, the uh, intimates removed and the servants and all of his stuff gone, that apparently living a long life with God is enough. Okay, okay. So the accuser doubles down. This is advanced test page two. Turn the page. Oh, no, there's more page. Almost out of time. I'm going to fail this class. Uh, Page two. Accuser. God, you have still not revealed the worst. Every human can bless you if you bless them with personal well-being, with especially health of body. But what about when mortality begins to assert? What about when that happens? Look this up in Job 2, 4, and 5. And here's God's shocking response. I authorize you to not only tell Job about the effects of mortality, but to demonstrate the reality of morbidity before his eyes. And so, while Job was living out a blameless life, his health was robbed and in a very painful manner. Guess what? I think you're guessing now. Job passed the test again. It turns out that living a long, even painful life with God is enough to be close to the living God for Job was enough 
to, to be living in that kind of life with all of the hardship, all of the loss, all of the disappointment. Okay. Turn the page. Rats, more test. Like, more? The clock is ticking. Service has to come to an end. Uh, yes. Now who does the accuser accuse? Job. Now he turns his sights on Job. And the accuser doesn't do this directly. He does it through Job's friends. Don't know if you can relate to that. Friends. So-called friends. And the accusation is this. Job, the reason you are suffering and maybe dying prematurely is because you have sinned against God and thus you're being punished and disciplined for that. What do you expect, Job? That's the way it works. And then Job says, no, I have not sinned. And the friends say, yes, you have. And Job says, no. And the friends say, yes. And it goes on for 29 chapters, pretty much like that. You can skip all those chapters. But Job is despairing at this point, despite his resistance to the bad theology of his friends. And there's something he can't live with. That's where the, you know, despair comes when there's something you can't live with. He passed all those tests, but there's something that was really dragging him down at this point. I mean, Job has said by his own testimony, I can live with premature loss. And in fact, he's saying something amazing. He'd say, I simply can give thanks for the gift of existence. The fact that, you know, there's not nothing in the universe. There's something, and it includes me. The gift of existence. He said, That's, I, can, I can even worship the living God who gives life in the midst of hard things, but I cannot live with a lie. I cannot live with bad theology. I can't live with the teaching that God punishes the innocent or that all suffering is equal to punishment because of sin. Have you heard that? Any suffering that comes must be punishment because of sin. Do you know that bad theology can make you want to die? That's how devastating. So here's a, here's a call out for theology classes and Sunday school and sermons and good books and good Bible studies groups where you can sort these things out and work towards something that is true. Bad theology can make you want to die. In the end, um, we'll go to the next slide. Does Job pass or fail? You know, when he, he's hit the last test and this onslaught, 29 chapters of berating from his friends, you deserve everything you're getting. Well, unlike Adam in the garden, Job ultimately passes the test. This is the amazing thing of this story. Don't miss it. How do we know this is true? How do we know that God, by his grace, brings him through to the truth? Well, because God himself confirms it. Here's the passage, the last chapter of Job. God said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, that was one of the that was the lead friend of the group of three, the terrible three. 
God says to this so-called friend, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you accordingly. Not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has. See, he repeats it. He doesn't want anyone to miss that part. If you want to explore this whole test thing, by the way, go see Jesus' temptations. I like the Luke 4 version. That's for homework. We see Jesus playing out exactly the same version of testing. We refer to it as the temptation of Jesus, but the Greek word is the same as the word for testing. Here's what Job knew. Here's what Job knew by faith. Here's what he demonstrates as the truth at the end of the story, that he knew that God had given him and that he was holding on to for dear life. He knew this by faith, that the one true living God is not capricious. He's not haphazard in how he operates in the world. He's not unpredictable. He acts consistently within his revealed character. And he gives humans what they choose, which is what justice means. Giving humans what they choose. But only after extending patient mercy for such a long time. I stand here today because of the mercy of God over such a long time. He put up with my wandering away in the direction of idols for 19 years. Could be longer. There may be some here, much older than 19, still not sure about the living God. Job, secondly, demonstrates his good theology, and how does he do that? He demonstrates it by the mercy extends to the false accusers. They're teaching a false theology, but And it's dragging him down to the point of despair, but he forgives his enemies. That's how we preach the gospel, by putting it into action with others. I want to pause on this forgiveness thing. I heard an amazing thing just this week. Forgiveness is not a feeling. The forgiveness of others who have hurt us or offended us is not a feeling. It's not a fiction where we say, well, I'm just going to forget that. It's, instead, it's a functional commitment, and it works like this. This is how one well-known author put it. Uh, put it in a character as a novel, and put it in the, in, the, in the mouth of a character who was mad at their dog. I guess the dog had done what dogs do. Looks at, the character looks at the dog and says, dog... Forgiveness means that even when you hurt me, I don't need to hurt you. It's a commitment before it's a feeling or some cognitive thing, some mental thing. What Job also knew, he knew about forgiveness and he knew about passing it along. Job also knows that the bad news is not physical death. Oh man, so many great songs today about that. Amazing worship songs. 
It's not about physical death. That's not the worst news. The worst news is having doubt and despair being sown in you by bad theology. The idea that suffering is always because of sin. You know, Jesus himself addressed the same bad theology. You'll be remembering that gospel story where he does that. He just frontal attacks that bad theology. Thank you, Jesus. And a corollary bad theology is all sin always demands suffering sent by God. See above. God's go-to place is mercy. Long, long, amen? Long mercy. The worst news is thinking that the God you have been worshipping and the God you have been thanking for the gift of life is just like the merciless no-gods of the ancient Near East or 21st century British Columbia. That's the worst news, is to have this doubt come in. Like, who is this God I'm worshipping? What is worse? What is the absolute worst? The the fear that your death has resulted from worshipping the wrong God. That fear that can, the accuser will come along and say, do you even, are you worshiping the right? Then how come this stuff's happening? I, oh, no, but maybe you're worshiping the right God, but you're worshiping him wrongly. That's why this bat, the accuser, always there. How did God completely release Job from this fear, which is the fear at the heart of false religion? How did he do that? The best news what Job learned through this hard, hard set of tests. Something almost unimaginable. It goes like this. When you are in a relationship with the living God and therefore aligned with his way, then your reality is what? It is resurrection. Forever life. And look how, look how God beautifully demonstrates that as in, in this Symbolic, real way. Symbolic, real, whatever that means. It's, it's symbolic, but also real. This, and he does it in the present age. You, you, get it, you get a little taste of this before the next age. That's God's gift to us. You get a little taste of it. We, Sharon and I had a taste of this in Salmon Arm. What an amazing place. We get this little taste as you walk around the amazing creation that someone referred to today. But here's how it goes. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. Same number of kids. Maybe, you know, we don't want to overdo it. After this, Job lived 140 years, and he saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died physically, an old man and full of years. But this is just a foretaste. Much of the Old Testament, that's the horizon they had in view, the end of physical life. But slowly, as we move through the Old Testament, we see more and more the hint of something much, much greater. The one who sets us free completely. There's a mystery that we're told the prophets long to look into. But Prophet Job is is shown anticipating it. Look at chapter 19. I know that my Redeemer lives. I think we need to be on the next slide. There we go. 
I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, and I, not another, how my heart yearns within me. Job, by his own word, longing for this thing that he can barely, barely imagine. God himself will come as a redeemer to create a place for us, a place of forever life with him, redeeming us from the prison of the fear of death. Because of the time, I'm not going to read all these texts, but I, I, if you go to the next slide, there's this amazing text from Hebrews 2, which is kind of a commentary in all this. It's all about lives who were held in slavery by the fear of death being totally set free of that. It's an amazing text. I just have to leave that with you. We come to the text that Sharon read to wrap up this sermon. I mean, this is not Job's words. This is the words of the real good friend that showed up, the surprise friend. Sometimes there's a surprise friend that'll show up in your house or maybe at the office or maybe on a a walk along Salmon Arm. And, you know, they'll be the true friend. And this is Elihu, chapter 33, counteracts all of the bad theology, speaks the truth. It's an amazing text. Elihu taught that full restoration was coming in the next age, removing all fear that your living faithfully unto death in the present age will have been in vain. It removes all fear of that, that niggling accusation. Is this going to count for anything? What's going to happen? Does it all just come to an end? Those following... The wicked way of no gods can turn around and align with the living God in Christ because of this vision written hundreds of years before Jesus came. Such a person that turns, and maybe there's some here today, I just want to say this very carefully today, but clearly, there may even be some here today. I know there's been a long pause since being together. I don't know if there's new folks here or folks that have not been here for a long time. Well, I guess no one's here. A lot of people have not been here for a long time, but, but by choice, not here for a long time. And, or maybe there's someone here new and, and wondering about this living God. If you see here, written hundreds of years before Jesus, this promise that God is going to come down and stand in the gap and invite you to leave the no-gods behind, the, the gods of fear, and to move into this complete reality of the living God in this life and in the next. Well, maybe there's someone here that's being tugged that way. I hope so. I pray so. And to realize that here's what you can declare today. I am not going to get what I deserve. That is the gospel. I am not going to get what I deserve. I'm going to get the mercy of God, which is a free gift. He accomplished this on the cross for me, for you. If you're that person thinking about that today, if you're being drawn towards that kind of life, that kind of awareness of who the living God is in Christ, 
If you're someone who's right now on the edge of despair or stuck in fear or living half-heartedly, maybe because you've never said yes to the life that Jesus is offering to you, then I, I want to pray for you right now. Let's just bow for a moment. Lord, we thank you for your word, your whole word, including this amazing book of Job, where you were beginning to reveal the breakthrough of breakthroughs, the cosmos-shattering, cosmos-transforming reality that you wanted to come down to show us completely who you are as the merciful one, the one who is willing to go to the greatest lengths of mercy to bring us to yourself, you, the living God. I pray, Lord, for that one person, those two people, maybe three, who you know and they know because they're beginning to fear you in that sense that they know who you are, the living God, and they know that you know them. I pray, Lord, that such people will, will turn to you completely today and say, yes, thank you for coming down. Thank you for coming down in Christ. Thank you for entering into this world. Thank you for revealing yourself to me even in this moment. And Lord, I say yes. I say yes to everything you've done. And I say I want to commit myself to you, to the truth. I want to commit myself to the forgiveness that you're offering and to be a forgiver, to be a transformed person in Jesus. Lord, uh, seal the deal with these people praying this prayer right now. Amen. Sharon and I will be gone very soon and hopefully returning this way sometime. But if you're a person who's prayed today, then I, you know, come alongside people who you can see, salmon arm people, people in this church, Broadview people. Come to someone. Don't leave the room. Don't leave the foyer until you've spoken to someone because this is a journeying together moment. The gospel according to Job. The gospel according to Jesus. I commend it to you. Amen.